внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный, я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Hello from the studios of UTA Radio in Arlington, Texas, where I am temporarily embedded, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location in the Washington, D.C. metro area is the one and only Peter Pomodantsev, a senior fellow at the SNF Agora Institute at the Johns Hopkins University and author of the books Nothing is True and Everything is Possible Inside the Surreal Heart of the New Russia and This is Not Propaganda. Welcome back to The Vertical, Peter. It's been way too long. You're one of the first friends of this podcast and it's great to see you again. It's wonderful to be back. Congratulations on all your titles, my word. <laughs> well, congratulations on all your titles. We both changed <laughs> titles several times since we've last exactly. seen each other on this program. <laughs> So, Peter, the reason we're doing this program is you, you wrote a, a, a absolutely fabulous piece in CODA this week, um, title, or last week, actually, titled Memory in the Age of Impunity. Um, and you wrote the following regarding Alexander Lukashenko's effective hijacking of Ryanair Flight 4978 back in May and the effective kidnapping of Belarusian dissident journalist Roman Pratasevich, who was aboard that flight. And I'm quoting you now. There was some outrage in what we like to call the international community. The words hijacking and even terrorist act were used, and then all was forgotten. Lukashenko faced mild consequences, such as a ban on the Belarusian state airline flying into Europe, but his message to anyone who dared oppose him was more potent. I can do what I want to you, wherever you might be. And this gets even worse. Uh, after Europe imposed sanctions on Belarus for the Ryanair incident, Lukashenko, of course, orchestrated a migrant crisis on the border with the, with the EU, which we're seeing to today. He flew migrants to Minsk from the Middle East and, and spirited them across the border into Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia. And now Lukashenko isn't even acting alone here. He's acting with the help and encouragement of his patrons in Moscow. Um, speaking with a straight face this week, um, illuminated only by gaslight, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said this week that Europe could solve the problem by simply paying Lukashenko off. Can you say geopolitical extortion? Of course you can. Peter, in your essay for CODA, you fleshed out some ideas about how we got to this age of impunity what I'm calling here Putin's world and Lukashenko's world, if you will. So how did we get here? And more importantly, how do we get out? Oh, it's such a, that's such, such, such a wonderful description you just gave, Brian. And, and also the news this morning, the memorial, uh, an NGO dedicated to preserving the memory of Stalin's crimes. And really one of the most important organizations in Russia um, has come under attack, has come under attack from the Kremlin. And, and will likely be shut down. I mean, there's something really, I mean, I mean, there's two things to, to, to look at really, Brian, I, I think in our conversation today. One is, you know, these increasingly aggressive acts by Putin and by Lukashenko, are they actually going towards something? Are, are they preparing something? And, and, and you probably know me, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm always sort of tired or I sort of sort of became tired of being a Russia watcher in the sense that I don't want it endlessly guess what the Kremlin is up to. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I kind of, I, I look at propaganda across the world these days. Um, but, but, you know, something within me is now very, very fearful. I mean, is this just repression for the sake of repression? Maybe, but they are now going to such an extent that it makes you feel that, that they're ginning something up. Um, yes. I don't know. I'd love to get your thoughts because you're a much, a much more kind of forensic Kremlin watcher than I am. But even my kind of like, you know, even I'm getting goosebumps at the moment by just the amount of norms they're breaking domestically and starting to internationally and, and whether they're cooking something up. But but my essay was was a little bit different in the sense that I, I was really thinking about us. You know, I was thinking about us and the great um, Western public or the democratic public. And, and I, was, I was really trying to work out why we seem to not react to these events and not just the ones that Putin or Lukashenko do, but also to ones in Syria and in Burma and, and to a certain extent even in, in China with the Uyghurs. 
Um, it's not that people have become heartless. I think when people see sort of videos of migrants getting pushed towards the border and shouted at by Belarusian forces and kind of kicked across the border into Poland and insulted, I think every normal person goes, my God, this is this is horrific. Or obviously when we see social media feeds from Burma or from Syria, people do react emotionally. I don't think people have become heartless. But then we don't retain it in any kind of memory. And that's what my essay was yeah. about. It's about memory. We don't remember it. It doesn't become a story. It doesn't become something that leads to action. It, there's a kind of a momentary emotional horror. And then we move on. And, and, and my essay was impelled by, you know, very similar messages I've been getting from friends in Syria, from Belarus, Burma, uh, um, bits of China, really saying the same thing. Like, Peter, you're a journalist. You write about things. You work at a university, you appear in Congress and stuff like that. You know, why can't you do something? Can you do something? And they're very specific. They know I can't do very much. They're like, but can you tell the world so the world starts realizing this and starts remembering so it becomes part of something bigger? And 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 I kind of ignored these messages for a long time beyond a kind of commiserating shrug. But in the end, I kind of started thinking, okay, what what's happened? Was it always this way? Um, or, or what's happened with our inability as, as a public to kind of remember these things and give them meaning? So, so I was really concerned with this question of memory. Um, and, and I started thinking, well, well, how do you remember things? And, and I know if you've ever played one of these sort of memory games at a party or something, um, and, and, and the way you remember things, and, and sort of any magician will tell you the same thing who does memory tricks, is you put them into a story. You know, we remember things when they're part of a sequence. When they're on their own, it's impossible to do. That's just how our brains work. Um, so a little event is remembered because it's part of a big event. And if you look at, I don't know, some religions like Judaism that have been very, very good at memorizing things, they're, they're obsessed with this idea. Let's turn our, our kind of like ethnic and religious memory into a story. You know, that's the way we preserve it. Um, and, and, and that's it. There's something to do there about human psychology and culture and so on. And, and I started thinking back to the Cold War, where, you know, this, you know, the attack on one dissident, um, which, you know, in, in the grand scheme of, of, I don't know, arrests or, or state repressions was, was, was probably a lot milder than we see now. You know, think about the Soviet Union in the 1970s. They were roughing people up and putting them into prisons. They weren't sort of barrel bombing their own population. But, 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 but this was remembered. And this was remembered because it was part of a larger story about the struggle of freedom versus dictatorship. Um, it was also remembered because, of course, it was being instrumentalized by, by different powers. I mean, there was a vested interest for I don't know, America to make sure you remembered this. But, but, you know, governments can't do anything unless it falls on something much deeper. There was a much deeper narrative that was in books, in culture, also in the way people define themselves. You know, people in democracy said, where do, we live in a democracy. That's our meaning. And we, you know, we're not like uh, those poor people in dictatorships and, and we, we should help them and so on. So at all these levels, there was this grander narrative uh, that small events can be part of. And of course, it was also related to, to politics. So the arrest of one dissident would be raised at the United Nations, you know, and so on and so forth. But also from the other side, you know, because the Soviet Union was also playing in a grand narrative. It could give meaning to, I don't know, anti-colonial struggles in Africa and elevate them and, and so on and so forth. And I don't want to be misty-eyed about those narratives. They were clearly very biased. They were clearly very faulty and 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 and, and full of their own blind spots and all, all that sort of thing. I'm not in any way kind of... I don't want to go to kind of like Cold War nostalgia or triumphalism or anything like that. But it tells us something about how small incidental events can become part of a larger story and kind of cement themselves in people's minds. And, and I think that's what's collapsed. That's what's collapsed. And, and the paradox is there was this moment in the early 1990s when obviously the Soviet narrative collapsed, but there was this idea that human rights would be the big new narrative. And there was this moment where it didn't matter which side of the kind of left-right debate you were on. The fact there was an assault on human rights in Kosovo, in Sierra Leone, even the outrage of what happened in Rwanda, we didn't do anything, but at least we were outraged by it because it was an affront to this idea that there is a struggle between freedom and rights and dictatorship and brutality. You know, there was a bigger story. And, and, and there's many reasons that bigger story has collapsed. Um, uh, part of it was self-destruction. You know, a lot of that language was misused. Um, frankly, in the invasion of Iraq, if you go back and look at W's lectures um, and speeches in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq, he really uses that language. He ties Iraq to, you know, Eastern Europe. Well, I mean, there's even a speech where it goes, what started in Berlin and Prague will continue in yeah. Baghdad. 
And I don't want to get into whether he was lying to himself or lying. The fact was, you know, afterwards that language and that narrative kind of Lost its felt power, yeah. trashed. Um, it's been attacked from outside. If you look carefully at Chinese and Russian propaganda, they're very, very adaptable, as you and I have discussed many times. You know, they, they, they you know, they're very flexible, but they do have a meta narrative. And the meta narrative is democracy and the demand for rights leads to war and chaos. Yeah, they, they even have these kind of videos on which they've had on on various. Rush, Russian channels, and now I see in Chinese propaganda, kind of they'll show kind of a protest movement in the Middle East or in Ukraine, and then the next shot is war, destruction, and you know it's a very, it's a very dishonest argument. Often they're the causes of these wars. You know, mm -hmm. uh, they've kind of made real their their their, their arguments by by you know creating that context, but but they are saying something really quite quite deep in that sense and and which does resonate with some people that you know better stability under authoritarians rather than democracy and chaos um so it's been attacked from outside very very aggressively and and then there's other reasons which i, I didn't really touch on in the essay but i think in my daily work are very important i don't think we live in a world of big narratives anymore simply the technology that, that enabled yeah. grand narratives belong to the world of you know, one-to-many communication, a library where, you know, somebody could say the five important books are Kessler, Solzhenitsyn, I don't know, right. and IYY is the great artist. This is the canon. This is the narrative. Um, or, or TV where where you could sort of, you know, the, the limitations of, of the media, the, the, the amount of media meant that you could kind of stick to a coherent narrative. I think in our, in our madly fragmented and ever more fragmenting world, I'm just not sure that grand narratives exist anymore. I mean, I, I just don't think they, you know, even if we try to piece it back together, I don't think we would be able to. So, so that's the world we live in. I think people are struggling. People are like, like they see these things happening. They see them happening everywhere, but they don't fit into a picture. They remain a mess, a heap of broken images. And, and, and um, the question then is, what do we do about that? Yeah, no, you've given us a lot to unpack here, Peter. And I kind of want to, I've, I've kind of Sorry. <laughs> taken, no, no, it's good. This is, this is why, this is why I love having you on the program. Um, um, first of all, about your being fearful about what you're seeing. Um, I, I am, I share your fear. Um, I see the increasing merger of Russia and Belarus right now. It's not going to be a spectacular annexation like Crimea. It's kind of being going to be like a frog boiling in water is what it looks like to me. You're seeing the increasing militarization of Belarus, which is a threat, a security threat to our, our, our friends and allies in Poland, Lithuania and Latvia, um, as well as all of all, all, all of Europe. Um, but in terms of your narrative, I agree with you. This is what grabbed my attention about this essay and which I, why, I, why I liked it so much is I also like to focus on grand narratives. And so this really resonated with me. And un it's concomitant with this decline of this kind of grand narrative of human rights that existed during the Cold War. We also see, or at least I have discerned, a decline in the belief in the Western story among us in the West, almost independent of what the Russians or the Chinese are doing. We've stopped believing in our own story. We've stopped believing in the power of the Western story. It's no longer fashionable to believe in the Western story anymore. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Because that's something I, I see now. It's had help. Uh, from the outside, for sure, as you point out. And you you wrote in a piece back in 2016, another piece that's resonated with me ever since, that effectively Putin has turned himself into the Che Guevara of the far right, um, of the Western populist, anti-democratic right, the same way a, a, you know, a, um, a, a young person would want to piss off their parents by wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt back in the 60s and 70s. You're saying Putin has turned himself into that iconic figure of the far right. So these kind of, can, can you unpack these two things, this lack of belief in the Western story and that kind of Putin has turned himself into almost this, almost this pop culture figure of the far right? Yeah, I mean, look, the Western story was 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 always, you know, its strength was always that it was self-critical. So I, I don't mind the self-criticism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a healthy thing. I think maybe we need to retire the term the West because I go to, when I talk to people in Taiwan, um, or in Hong Kong, or in lots and lots of places, um, they might not use the term West, but they're very aware of the difference between dictatorship and democracy. So, you know, and, and, and the things they're thinking about, and especially if you look, I don't know if you've read much sort of contemporary Chinese literature that's kind of in, a, in opposition to the government. I mean, their references are Harbel and Cheshlev Milosh. I mean, mm -hmm. they reference like Cold War a lot uh -huh. and see a lot of their own kind of parallels there and a kind of an intellectual tradition. So, so 
so, so, so maybe we need to retire the term the West. Um, I, I also the West not as a geographic is. characterization, but as but as an idea. Um, it, yeah, I mean, I just don't know if, if it's yeah, but, but but it's got a geography pin to it. Yeah, so, so maybe but when we... I say when I say the West, when I say who is the West in this struggle, the West are those of us, regardless of our ethnicity, race, region, religion, or geography, uh, those of us that freely choose to live in societies governed by the rule of law. That's basically yeah. what the West is for me. Um, the Japan is the West in this in this definition, and so is Taiwan. Fine. So, so I think two, 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 two things have made it more complicated. You know, I spent a lot of time looking at, uh, at kind of propaganda campaigns, very, very sort of like close up. So we'll look at elections in Germany or in Sweden or somewhere. And, and often people are looking for what's Russia up to? Or what's this state up to? Or what are the non-democratic states up to? And when we get closer to them, instead of seeing this kind of binary world where you could say, here's the people who believe in democracy, let's call them W. And here's the people, Q, who don't like it, using those letters <laughs> Interesting randomly. Interesting choice of letters, but yeah, go That's ahead. not what it's like. It's not two forces. It is this complete chaos of very many actors. And it's very hard to really say in a kind of simple way, here's the ones who represent dictatorship, here's the ones who represent democracy. Everything has become so blurred. Mm -hmm. and, and that kind of simple kind of definition between the differences of those two things has become, it's become harder to pin down. Uh, you know, where do we put authoritarian populists in some ways? They're very democratic. Um, also, the tools of what you might think of as non-democratic actors borrow from the tools of democracy. They don't, you know, they don't use censorship necessarily. They flood the zone by saying, here's more information than you've ever had before. And, and then how are we meant to react as Democrats? So kind of like, you know, the forces at play are now so confused, don't really fit into simple ideological boundaries, but also not into simple national boundaries as mm -hmm. well. So, so, you know, maybe I suppose you always had a, like, a certain amount of people in Britain who were like pro-Soviet Union, but actually not very much. Right. Most of the left was pro-democracy and anti-Soviet. So you could kind of talk about some sort of consensus. Now it's all so mixed up. And I suppose in that kind of sweltering chaos um, where, where all the kind of old dividing lines and binaries have broken down, it's very, very hard to, to sort of, you know, very simply establish whose side is who on and where enough Tucker Carlson fits in that. Uh, right. You know, like, <laughs> um, so, so, but you know, it's very interesting. Tucker Carlson, a, a major, one of the largest U.S. TV hosts. I mean, this is not a fringe TV. Went host. on the air the other night they, and said, "We they, should. They, why? Why are we supporting they, Ukraine instead of Russia in the war?" Or, or going to uh, going supporting Orban. I mean, so mm -hmm. where is America then? I mean, so it's these are not fringe figures. These are mainstream figures. So. So, you know, in that kind so of So we're living in Surkov's world in a lot of ways. I mean, you you, you know, you used to write quite a bit about Vladislav Surkov and how he's kind of created the external forms of democracy without the real content of democracy. And that was his his great genius. And he sort of exported that now. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's for, that for sure. And also, I suppose what the Russians were very quick to is that you're going to have to be super flexible in this world. Being rigidly ideological, thinking in terms of the West versus the non-West, democracy versus dictatorship, that, that's not what the new world is like. In this new world, you've got, you've got to be able to transform, form new alliances. One minute you're the ideal Democrat, then you're not. I mean, just the search for grand narratives has gone. And what matters now is, you know, a certain carnival flexibility mm. um, and almost being impossible to pin down is a huge advantage. Um, so so I think I think all those things make it very, very hard to to live with grand narratives. But again, I come back to the technological piece as well. I wonder whether we're just out of this world where, you know, under the word W, you will find you know, seven books which represent the idea of the West. I, I just I wonder whether that's gone. Well, um, let me pick yeah. up on that a bit, Peter, because I, I just read a really fascinating essay in the New Yorker by by Jill Lepore, who's a a, 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 um, a historian at Harvard University, um, host of an awesome podcast uh, called The Last Archive. Um, but she yep. wrote, "What happened the last time we almost lost democracy?" And she's comparing the current period to the '30s, and she describes how. Things like like then, like now, this was all breaking down. Um, mm -hmm. People were very open to ideas like fascism and communism in the 30s in the West, right? But there was a concerted effort to kind of reestablish that narrative, um, to reestablish mm -hmm. the grand narrative of democracy. 
Um, is that impossible in the fragmented world we live in now? I mean, I, I, the, the, I don't know if you read the Jill Lepore essay. I highly recommend it to everybody. It's a, it's a, it's a great essay that really, really made, made me think a lot. Um, but is it possible? It was, a, it was about leadership at that time. And, and, and there were concerted efforts um, in terms of kind of even like neighborhood social clubs and discussion groups and civic organizations trying to revive the idea of, of democracy, which was under assault from the, both the left and the right. Again, much like it is now. Is that possible in today's world? And, and making a lot of similar arguments as well, that, that like, you know, Weimar democracy is a farce. What European countries need is fascism. And a lot right. of people were seduced by this idea. Um, now I think there's a, you know, the Chinese make a very strong argument these days. I don't agree with it, but it's a very strong one that in a world of big data, the only way to govern societies is through centralization and control. Liberal democracy and theories of rational choice are absurd in an era of big data when your data will choose the ideal, you know, foreign policy for your country or the ideal trade policy. And like the idea that people will vote well, on it is, is ridiculous. Yeah. You gather the Liberalism data is under assault from society. dataism. This is another yeah. another thing that's been concerning me yeah. lately. No, no, no. This is this is this is um so 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 there's a philosophical sort of challenge as well that isn't centralization a better model, and and we haven't really started to answer that. Um, I completely agree. Um, I don't find the comparisons with the 30s particularly comforting, judging how the 30s played out. Yes. Um, and 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 so so I can't say I'm like like well hey it's like the 30s, but that there are yes these I do agree that these crises are cyclical. I do agree also in the bit, things that I focus on, which is the radio. We had something very similar where. Radio, like the internet, was first greeted as this miracle cure mm -hmm. that will enhance democracy very quickly. Stalin and Hitler learned how to use it more effectively than anyone else. And it takes a while for an FDR to start using it for mm -hmm. his fireside chats or for the BBC to be kind of really created and built some muscle. So the, the fact that these things are, are cyclical is both horrifying and, and optimistic. But mm -hmm. it does mean going back to ABC stuff. Um, the things that were built up in the post-war era, like the declarations of human rights. I don't think we throw them out, but I do think we have to go and interrogate them. What do they actually mean? When do they mean something to people? We do have to ask a lot of very fundamental questions about the relationship of information to democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of very lazy assumptions, like the marketplace of ideas um, will automatically you know, improve democracies. Like, how is this marketplace meant to work? You know, <laughs> like, uh, we have all these kind of like, we will have pluralism and that will mean that democracy will triumph. Like, will it? Are you sure? I mean, what do we mean by pluralism? So, so there's a lot of fundamental questions that we need to ask about how to make democracy successful and when it matters to people. I think that's the kind of thing that we really have to go back to. We're being, you know, if you were talking about the West as a democratic tradition, which it wasn't always, um, then 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 we have to really go back to these brass tacks. When does it matter? And I suppose one thing that does encourage me is that people are still protesting. People are still fighting for something across the world, from Hong Kong to Santiago. People are still doing, risking their lives for something. There is some democratic itch and urge which might go deeper than the kind of narratives and stories we had around democracy um and and by the way my essay is hopeful so so yeah. it's not all gloom and gloom it's it's one of these first half depressing second half hopeful essays yeah no you 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 do end on a hopeful note and i'm i'm an optimist by nature and i if if, if, if i weren't I, I would probably have have gone crazy by now i mean i see some disturbing signs i see a recent poll in the uh, it was not so recent anymore in the journal of democracy and i'd like to see the internals of this poll but it basically says that uh, uh, americans in their 20s only 52% believe it's essential to live in a democracy, which is disturbing. That number when I was growing up was in the 90s. Um, I also wanted to pick up on your your famous Jay Gavada reference because you do you, I think that is very correct that Putin has effectively turned himself into this pop culture icon of the far right. But we you know we know where that all went the last time around with Jay Gavada. I mean, it remained this okay. kind of pop culture uh, phenomenon that was basically empty and didn't really have any political ramifications. And, you know, can the kind of the Putin, the, 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 the Jagovar Putin kind of comparison go the same way? What, what do you think about that before we move into the second half to talk about kind of maybe some solutions? Well, uh, that's a very, that's an interesting question. Um, so I guess the, the weakness, I don't know if it was weak everywhere, but maybe in general, the weakness of the kind of revolutionary left in Western Europe and America was that it was never really 
bought into by anybody serious in power and therefore it remained fringe and 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 yeah i don't know i mean i, I don't know to what extent um some left-wing terrorist movements were inspired by che Guevara. So i don't know if it was completely right. bloodless or harmless but but it was never bought into by any people in real power what's much more dangerous with with this kind of very i mean faux conservatism that putin tinkers with when he when he thinks it's convenient is that it's is maybe often cynically taken up by people in power mm -hmm. in, in Europe and America. Yeah. So so it's one thing when you've got, you know, kids on campus who will become liberal Democrats by the time they're in their 30s flirting with Cho Guevara. It's something quite different when Rupert Murdoch, Tucker Carlson, um, the NRA, um, and <laughs> right. maybe an increasing number of- Are wearing the metaphorical Che Guevara t-shirts. It's a different, so it's more about us rather than him. And and yeah, I mean, you know, Salvini is a serious player. Orban is a serious, very serious player, um, and so on and so forth. So so you know, these guys are serious, and I think it's they're powerful anyway. And when they, you know, it's so hard to judge Putin's influence. You know, we try to do it through media effects and stuff, which which is a bit of a um, a, bit, a bit of a sort of intellectually interesting, but ultimately I think very frustrating. Uh, um, type of research uh there's something else going on there's something about having this kind of you know beacon of of well nastiness uh shining forth from moscow across uh across the globe but really across europe um means a lot you know when you have someone big and scary who doesn't care about any of any global rules on your side I think that gives a huge psychological bolster to the Orbans and the Salvinis and the mm -hmm. AFDs of this world. I'm not saying they wouldn't exist anyway. I think they would, but but it's very hard to quantify that, you know. But having this kind of like, you know, you know, we, we, even when you're on a fight at school, you know, the big guy at school is in your corner. He doesn't have to do anything, you know. You don't have to measure that effect in some sort of like like really kind of like right. tiny way. But you you feel more self confidence. And the kind of legitimization that Putin gives these guys and the way he sort of casually breaks rules and gets away with it and shows up, you know, the emptiness of the, what's that ridiculous phrase we use, the international order or whatever mm -hmm. it is, uh, the rules-based order rules -based or whatever, you know, it's become a joke, that phrase. But, but but just having him like constantly going around and, you know, smashing plates in, 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 uh, in, in, in polite society and getting away with it. I think that just encourages these guys so much yeah. more. They're like, oh well, look, look what Putin's doing. We can throw up a, we can throw a few teacups as well, right. and probably get away with it. It just, it's very hard to quantify. You know, it's very hard to quantify these these sort of influences. But but I think they're pretty significant. Yeah, no, and I mean, and Lukashenko just just today said, you know, if Europe gives makes more sanctions, I'm going to freeze them. I'm not going to let gas go through Belarus to Europe. So yeah. I mean, it's it's you it's, never it's, it's do that if Putin wasn't like you know. Having, oh, of course, you know, and Putin's Putin's allowing him to do it. Already. But this is a perfect segue into where I wanted to go in the second half, Peter. I don't know if you planned that, but uh, but it, but it, it's a, it's a perfect it's a perfect segue. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at how the West itself has contributed to this age of, of, of impunity we are now living in. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location in the Washington, D.C. metro area is the one and only Peter Pomodantsev, a senior fellow at the, at the SNF Agora Institute at the Johns Hopkins University and author of the books Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, Inside the Surreal Heart of the New Russia, and This is Not Propaganda. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So, Peter, I wanted to start the second segment by quoting what is a very important section of your essay in CODA, which I believe gets to the heart of the matter 
of how we got to Putin's world, this world of impunity. You wrote the following, and I am quoting you back to yourself now. When Russian activists and journalists first tried to tell the world in the early Putin era about how their regime was based on stealing money from state assets and laundering it in Western countries, most shrugged. Who cares? It might be bad for Russia, but it made London and New York a lot richer and the Kremlin weaker. It took a decade of slow, painful arguments and evidence gathering to show that corruption in Russia, Africa, Central Asia, and the Middle East was not just a local tragedy. It affected us too. It was also a way to infiltrate and undermine democracies, compromise our foreign policy, suborn politicians, fund far-right and fund far-right politics. It created an elite that used the influence and leverage to start wars and get away with it because Western countries were now dependent on corrupt investments. It has created a world where the global rich were living with another set of rules, free of domestic justice anywhere, anywhere, and that in turn was fueling the inequality and anger that undermined people's faith in democratic institutions. And the enemy was not just in the Kremlin, but also among the middlemen and money launderers in respectable offices in New York and London. I thought that really got to the heart of it, but it wasn't the first time you made this argument, Peter. Um, and I, I hope I'm not embarrassing you by, 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 by heaping praise on you, but you made, you sounded this alarm earlier than most. Way back in 2014, uh, you and Michael Weiss wrote the following in the report, The Menace of Unreality, How the Kremlin Has Weaponized Information and Finance, which I think is a seminal report that really got this discussion rolling. And you wrote the following back in 2014, six years ago. Acquiescence to Russian corruption with illicit funds regularly laundered through the West works to the Kremlin's advantage both domestically and internationally. If the premise of the neoliberal idea of globalization is that money's politically neutral and that interdependence will be an impulse towards rapprochement and the international commerce sublimates violence into harmony, the Russian view remains at best mercantilist, with money and trade used as weapons, interdependence as a mechanism for aggression. The Kremlin does not need to be the outright leader of a block of nations a la the Warsaw Pact. Instead, it can exacerbate existing divides, subvert international institutions, and create a world where its own form of corrupt authoritarianism flourishes. Prophetic words indeed written six years, uh, six years ago. So, Peter, have we seen the enemy? And the enemy is us. And what can we do about that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does sort of, again, show that, like, splitting things up into two worlds is is very hard these days. Um, so we might be, we, maybe we can talk about two different types of globalization or something. Um, I, I think Henry Farrell called it quite nicely as well, weaponized interdependence mm -hmm. is kind of what globalization has ended up as. Um, so have we seen the enemy and the enemies ourselves? I mean, um, in many ways, I think it's even starker in China. I, I think this contradiction was always there. I, I, I wonder whether... We, and this is something we really need to talk about fundamental sort of questions. This is one of the big fundamental questions we need to go back and think about um, and see if we can find an answer to is, is there a connection between the free market and free people? Which is kind of like, you know, the, the assumption again that we kind of had in the Cold War that, that they're somehow connected. Um, and, and we need to ask very seriously, was that just a piece of our own uh, PR? And did we end up believing our own PR, which is always very, very dangerous? Because historically, capitalists have rather loved the totalitarian regimes, and capitalists have often been quite totalitarian. I mean, you know, Henry Ford in his own way. So, um, so, so we really need to ask some big questions about that. Um, or is there a way of keeping, you know, of making the market work for democracy? But, but th that kind of simplistic assumption, I, I think, has gone away. Uh, I think it's even more sort of starker now with the Uyghurs in China, and you know, when you have. You know, German car manufacturers saying, well, we don't really know if there's any slave labor in, in, in our factories in China, so we're not going to do anything about it. I mean, you know, it, it does send shivers down one's spine. Um, so, so, I mean, again, it's a little bit like with disinformation. Um, the Kremlin isn't doing anything that the system wasn't set up to do when it uses tax havens and, and, and uh, non-transparent means of moving money around. That is the system we created for our own reasons. Um, so, so they're exploiting what's there. Same with disinformation. I mean, like you know, Facebook, etc., were created to create uh, to enable targeted, often anonymous, and 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 really often inauthentic campaigns. That's why that's part of that's part of the the 
the the idea of of social media marketing. So all the Kremlin is doing is is just using that. Um, so yes, it, the, 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 there is a lot of um, you know a case of them kind of just like you know instead of finding us from the outside, just sort of using our system to their own advantage. All right, no, I mean Peter, I have a, I have a theory about this, and I'd actually like to hear uh, what you what 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 you think of this. this. Is something I actually want to write about, and it's something I kind of wanted to blow by. You're one of the people I wanted to blow this by, but um, when I look at this kind of thirty years crisis, basically what's happened from the wild optimism of 1990. And I mark that, um, I remember George H.W. Bush's State of the Nation, spe- State of the Union speech um, back in 92, after the, after, right at the end of the Cold War, when he declared the Cold War over and communism dead, and where we are now in 2021, and what we've been discussing through this entire thing. I think the seeds of the crisis we're in now were planted in that period of optimism in the early 1990s. And the reason I think this is the case is because at that time in the West, Reaganism, Thatcherism, what we today consider neo, we call neoliberalism, um, that was ascendant. This hyper laissez-faire, low regulation, you know, hyper privatized world, um, the world of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, um, that was ascendant at that point when we won the Cold War, and we made the mistake at that point of believing that it was that ideology that won the Cold War, and that ideology ceased to be just one part of the Western intellectual tradition um, and became almost scripture. The Washington consensus was based on what? Hyper laissez-faire policies, deregulation, privatization, right? gutting of social welfare states, right? This was the Washington consensus, which we not only were implementing at home, we were exporting abroad. We made the mistake of believing that's what won the Cold War because what really won the Cold War was the whole gamut from... Franklin Roosevelt on the left uh, to, 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 to Ronald Reagan and Thatcher on the right. And we threw away half of our intellectual tradition um, because we believed it was what won the Cold War. And now we are living with the consequences of that. We've deregulated, deregulated our economies to the point where there are gaping holes that are national security threats. Does this hold water with you? Well, there's, there's certainly a large, a large element of of truth in that. Um, but you'd want to talk to sort of you no know, somebody who was there and sort of close up, like Joseph Stieglitz or someone. I was like, I was a pup at that. I was like school in the 1990s. So uh, there's only so. But much you do a lot say. of thinking about these things. Yeah, but by the time I was there, though, that was already shredded. By the time I was finished university and went to Russia in 2001, it was already a joke. I mean, and it wasn't just that, frankly. It was already the EU stuff was already seen as a joke as well. So it wasn't just the Washington bit. It wasn't just the IMF policies that were seen as a joke and as damaging. Um, but um, um, kind of the EU rule of law idea was something that could easily be subverted. Maybe just maybe we we're naive in another way. Maybe we we're naive that kind of like authoritarian forces would, would go along for very for, for, for very long. Uh, and they they didn't, and they came back, and they regrouped, and they 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 found new ways of flourishing, and and maybe that was the naivety. Uh, but you know, clearly there were you know, epic mistakes made, um, both kind of tactically, but also could well be intellectually as well. Um, but um, maybe maybe yes, but also even if it had done well. I think they would have come back. <laughs> yeah. Just like, you know, no, I, I was, guess what I'm... Be, there was the idea that, it would be, you know, that, that we were there and it was like, you know, it was all smooth sailing from now on. I don't know. You know, China, China went down a different route and uh, probably used elements of those economic reforms very effectively and, 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 and is now, you know, a very serious challenger on so many levels. So, so I, I don't know. I think that definitely that's part of the story, but, but I wouldn't discount the the others, the other side and their ability to adapt, reorganize and attack. No, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't say these are mutually exclusive. In fact, I think they are mutually reinforcing what we were talking about in the first half of this program, basically these grand narratives breaking down. We effectively inadvertently created the financial incentives for these grand narratives to break down. Um, it's all, yeah. it's, it's a little, I mean, we, if, if you, to use Marxian terms here, we, we're, we're talking about the economic substructure and the, 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 the intellectual superstructure here. Um, but I'm, and I'm not going to make any judgments about which one is, um, is ascendant and can kind of get into a, a Hegel Marx debate here. But, but I think we've had, we did create the financial incentives 
to break down these grand narratives. You're smiling, so I know you have something clever to say. No, no, <laughs> not at all, not at all, not, nothing clever at all. Yeah, no, no, I, I was thinking about just, like, I always tie things, I'm not, just to be very clear, I, I, I'm not some sort of grand sort of political scientist philosopher. I really focus, I mean, I'm a, you know, primarily just a writer, but 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 in the sense that I specialize on the study of something, I, it's, it's propaganda and the information environment. So I always bring it back to that, simply that's the kind of the, 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 the quite precise uh, uh, um, little grain of sand that I see everything else through. So, so, so I mean, definitely in the information environment, um, the idea that, you know, um, you could just create um, commercially viable media and that if you had that and a strong advertising market, that would guarantee um, a strong pluralistic democracy has turned out to be absolute kind of nonsense um and, and you see that more you know more than anywhere else in america where polarization is happening for many reasons but it's absolutely clear that the financial model that even good media have chosen um adds to it i mean if your aim is to define yourself against the other media and that's the way you get audiences then then you I mean you, you don't have a you know you're not really thinking about nurturing a democratic public sphere you're thinking about how to sort of you know you know, G up your audience and make them hate on someone else. Um, and even looking at the financial model, something like the New York Times has chosen, which is, I don't know, to eat up every liberal in the country. That's kind of been their strategy. <laughs> uh, instead of trying to sort of be that place where all bits of society meet, they've gone for a, a different commercial strategy. And, and that I think does inform their kind of editorial priorities as well. So, so you know, so even in the environment that I look at where, you know, we've always theorized this very delicate balance between a market and a public sphere, which has to be a bit more than a market, um, then then that's broken down. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing that would encourage any media in America to get up in the morning and say, OK, how do we bring Fox News viewers and CNN viewers together into a, you know, into a real, you know, all national debate? There's just no, there's absolutely no motivation or incentive to do that. And plus, then you have commercial social media companies who profit off of breaking down any kind of all national dialogue. So, so, um, you know, that's, you know, that's a clear sign that, that the, the sort of the logic between the market would lead to better democratic results has completely broken down in the information space. So in the, we, I mean, we're, we're bumping up against the end here, but what I want to do is I, I mean, I, we, we talked about how we got into this mess. Um, how do we get out of it, Peter? I mean, you 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 focus on grand narratives. You focus on on disinformation. Um, how do we get out of this um, in this fragmented world? Is it even possible? So, so I suppose that two things to think about, um, which, which are kind of two parts of the same thing. If we're talking about internationally, because I think internationally is very important. Um, so I end my essay on a positive note. Um, I look at the winners of the Nobel Prize this year, yes. so Maria Resta in the Philippines and Nova Gazeta in, in Russia. So, so Maria Resta is a Filipino journalist caught up in the most esoteric, you know, I suppose globally provincial story you can imagine, being bullied by a, a Southeast Asian dictator. is pretty much standard, or wannabe dictator, is pretty much standard across across Southeast Asia or Latin America. I mean, Maria's rest story in a way is, un, is sadly unremarkable. You know, newspapers get attacked all the time uh, and, and, and often, you know, with, with much more lethal consequences than, than, than in the Philippines. What she managed to do, and, and this was really her genius, was say, OK, yes, I'm under attack by, by this nasty illiberal populist, let's call him that. Um, but how is he attacking me? And he was attacking her through you know, online cyber militias and troll farms and, and this kind of abuse of social media, which social media companies seem to be, you know, very, very vulnerable to. And so she made her story about something much more than, than a case in the Philippines, but about social media companies. How do we, um, how do we regulate the online space? If your kid's being bullied online, if like you're being harassed by, uh, you know, uh, by nasty people online or, or by a government, you know, how how should we re be responding to that in, in democracies? And that's a question that everybody cares about. And and so her genius was to take like something that seemed very esoteric and, and very kind of in the corner of of the global agenda and and make it about all of us. And and that was, you know, uh, I, I, and that's because she saw the underlying interconnections. 
Uh, same with corruption. Uh, as, as you read out that passage from my, from my essay, I mean, when it comes to corruption, I think there is now an understanding that, I mean, kleptocracy, let's be more precise than corruption, kleptocracy and money laundering of assets in the West, because corruption is a very empty term. But, but that kind of very specific abuse has actually consequences for um, for our security and for inequality and so on. So, so um, in our own countries. So, so I think I think I think those kind of lines are being kind of you know made. So, so we might, I don't know if we're going to have grand narratives anymore, but I think the ta- the task of journalism is actually to connect these issues and find mm-hmm. these underlying connections. And that's hard work, but I think that's a mission for journalism today. So that's one side. And and the other side, like inside democracies. I do think we need a new sort of generation of civic media um, whose job is to rebuild or build uh, a new public sphere. Um, That doesn't mean being nice to extremists. I think extremists need to be isolated, as in like the Nazis and the fascists. But, you know, yes, it does have to be somebody's job to engage part of the Fox News audience, not just let it drift off into Tucker Carlson land and bring them into to a common information environment. That has to be somebody's job. Uh, in Europe, that's easier. We have a tradition of public service media, mm-hmm. which haven't been able to answer the challenge of technology, uh, but at least that ideology is not alien. In 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 Sweden, for example, when, when Swedish public service media realized they'd alienated a lot and they'd lost a lot of, you know, the people voting for Swedish Democrats, they were like, okay, we, let's go and re-engage them. Let's go and talk to them. Let's start to see how we can engage some of this, this, this audience. Um, in America, it's unclear who should do that. Um, it's, 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 I think it'll be a, a bottom-up thing in America. Uh, I, I don't think you, you have a public service tradition. So, so it'll be civic media. It'll be maybe small media. It might be this rebirth of local media that, that is hor- hopefully going to be um, um, encouraged by some new laws in, in, in the House. So, so we do need somebody who's going to get up in the morning and deal with these problems of disinformation and polarization. They're not going to be cured magically. Um, so those are two things to get on with. They're pretty big, I'd say, Brian. I, I think we have plenty to do. Um, I think the challenge is quite obvious. Uh, I think what is often missing is the incentives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really the problem. The incentive structure is, is in direct opposition to the needs of democracy. Um, so, so yeah, that's no, what I, I mean, I, and I, I would add to your optimistic notes, first of all, on this idea of public civic media, I mean, we can learn a lot from our friends in Ukraine, Hramatsky television and Hramatsky radio in Ukraine, I think kind of created this space in Ukraine, in this world of kind of hyper, hyper balkanized oligarchic media structures where everybody had an agenda. Um, Hramatsky did carve out this space. Um, that was this public space created by citizen initiatives. Um, I don't know what it, its audience numbers look like, but it's a model I would love to see emulated um, in both the United States and in, in, in Western Europe. The other cause for optimism I would throw out there is, and we started out this discussion with Belarus, of course, and you started out your essay with Belarus, um, and it's been all negative up to now, but I'm going to bring the, the, the positive side of Belarus. I mean, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya is, um, is, is, I think, making a major contribution whether or not she's successful in terms of the, the her political goals in Belarus, she is kind of creating this alternative Belarus as a representative of the of the of the other Belarus um, in both. In, I, I, you know, I, I saw her highly successful visit here in the United States, saw her speak on numerous occasions. Um, and I, I, I know she's she's treated almost like a head of state in European capitals at this time. That's another contribution to this to this to this counter narrative um last word to you before we wrap it up peter yeah but i mean like let's go back we started with belarus so let's go back to belarus i mean the, the secret would be i think to go okay how do you connect issues in belarus with with wider issues and i think there's many by the way i think there's one yeah. you know i think i think there's many ways to, to think about belarus as, and see how it can be meaningful to others i think there's a very big story there about post-colonial sovereignty. I think there's a bit of an awakening in lots of post-Soviet countries, whether it's um, even Azerbaijan in some ways after the conflict, but but also in Kyrgyzstan, obviously in Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, and obviously the Baltics. So, so there's a post-colonial story there, and that I think connects with post-colonial stories in Africa, in Latin America. There's lots of ways Belarus can be sort of seen within a much larger trend. Then there's the question of digital rights. 
uh, you know, both the way that the government is kind of like, you know, using kind of surveillance, online surveillance, and 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 sadly also American companies being used mm-hmm. in that online surveillance. And what does that mean for digital rights? I think that's Belarus is part of a much bigger debate around that. And and well, and so on and so forth. You know, I think, and you you're much more of an expert than I am. So so yes, it's great that what Svetlana is doing, and 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 well done to her and her team. But 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 that's still very much an elite discourse. And and what I really I think the change will happen when when there's a public discourse around this, when when people in, I don't know, Birmingham understand that what happens in Belarus uh, matters to them. Uh, and, and that is partly our responsibility as media and as journalists. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe we're maybe we're explaining things wrong, maybe by splitting our newspapers up into national and international news. Mm-hmm. We're already making a mistake. Maybe we have to start thinking about cross cutting themes just in the way we talk about these issues already. Um, you know, there's a lot of thinking we have to do about the way we give a picture of the world to people. I mean, something we looked at a lot is the migration crisis and the way that's covered. That That's largely covered in ways which are very unhelpful, even by good media, uh, which don't really show the, I don't know, the roots of the problems of migration and how they might be solved. It's always about the migrants are coming here, which already is a very, very, mm-hmm. you know, a very, very defeatist framework. You can do that in a humanitarian way. They're coming here and we must help them. Or you'll do that. They're coming here, and and we should protect our, you know, our country from them. Um, but by framing it over and over, they're coming here, nonstop pictures of boats, that kind of that story. Um, we're actually always, every day, strengthening the sense of mm. them and us, and the idea that you could potentially shut yourself off from the world. And at the end of the day, that can only help the kind of I don't know, the the Trumpian instincts that sit within maybe everybody at some level. Yeah. So so um, um, we have a lot of thinking to do, a lot of responsibility. And, and you know, this goes back to the question of like, you know, uh, what is our role as well? As, as the people who work in the space of furthering what comes after the grand narratives, you know, what, what's our role in all of this as well? Uh, us as media, sorry. I mean, you were saying us, 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 us. I mean, us as, us as purveyors of the information context that people live in. Well, I, I hope this program and I hope your essay is a, is, is a, is a first step in getting us all thinking in, in, in that way. For those of you who haven't read it, read it yet, and shame on you. It was published in CODA. The title is <laughs> Memory in the Age of Impunity by Peter Pomerantsev. Um, and that's unfortunately all we have time for today. I would like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location in the Washington, D.C. metro area has been the one and only Peter Pomodonsev, a senior fellow at the SNF Agora Institute at the Johns Hopkins University and author of the books Nothing is True and Everything is Possible Inside the Surreal Heart of the New Russia and This Is Not Propaganda. Peter, thanks as always for an enlightening conversation. And I'd also like to thank our production team, which is not virtual today. It's actually in the control room with me. Lance Ligas keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life and cleaning up many or all of my many messes. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.